You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. This is the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. Useless Information. So I'm going to shake things up a bit starting with this podcast. As I had mentioned in the last podcast, I was thinking of splitting the podcast into two separate parts and I asked for feedback on the idea. And since none of the people who contacted me thought it was a bad idea, I decided to give it a shot. So in this podcast, you'll hear the main story that I normally do. And I've been working on that story for the past few weeks. And then I'll be back in a couple of weeks with all of the shorter length material that I normally include. And I'm going to add a little bit more content to the next podcast, so stay tuned for that. But first, let me tell you today's story. It's a story of a little girl named Helen Vasco. And most likely, you've never, ever heard of Helen Vasco, and there's a good reason for that. Her story has become a forgotten footnote to history. Yet her fascinating story was one that made headlines across the United States way back in 1933. Now, Helen's father, John, had emigrated from his native Czechoslovakia to the United States in 1923. Then his wife, Anna, who's reported as being Mary in many of the newspapers back then, his wife, Anna, and their daughter, Mary, her real name was Mary, so Anna and daughter, Mary, followed seven years later. Then, Helen, who's the main focus of the story, and her twin sister, Anna, came into this world on January 22nd of 1931. They were actually born in the United States. In fact, they were born in Hastings-on-Hudson, New York, which lies on the eastern bank of the Hudson River, approximately 20 miles or 32 kilometers north of Midtown Manhattan. Now, if Hastings-on-Hudson has a familiar ring to it, that's because it was also the setting of the incident between Isabel Mackay and her chauffeur in the previous podcast. Life was incredibly tough for the Vasco family. Not only were they strangers in a new land, but the world was in the midst of the Great Depression. While John had previously worked as both a gardener and a factory worker, all job opportunities had since dried up, and he was now employed by the Westchester County Emergency Work Bureau. Basically, he was on relief. Rent for their three-bedroom, 21 Ridge Street basement apartment, and it's a building that still stands there today, and it almost looks identical to what it did in 1933, Anyway, their three-bedroom basement apartment cost $15 per month, which is $305 per month today. While that may not sound like much for rent, when one has very little money coming in, that is a big part of a family's monthly budget. While their lives would be forever changed when public health nurse May Christopher examined Helen for a problem with her left eye. At the time, Helen was 19 days shy of her second birthday. Ms. Christopher later told a reporter for the New York Daily News, quote, Mrs. Vasco brought the baby to my clinic last January 3rd. I advised Borg's solution and immediately made an appointment at Grasslands Hospital for January 25th. 
little side note here. Grasslands Hospital now operates as the Westchester Medical Center University Hospital. Anyway, she continued, On January 24th, the mother brought the child again, saying the father had consulted a doctor who advised immediate attention. Next day at Grasslands, the ailment was diagnosed as a malignant tumor. On January 26th, the doctors, knowing the condition was probably congenital in such a young person, examined Helen's twin, Anna. She was all right. Helen had been diagnosed with retinal glioma, which according to Wikipedia is referred to as retinoblastoma today. Doctors believe that Helen had already lost the vision in her left eye, but she was too young to understand what blindness was. And surgery to remove the eye was Helen's only hope. Without it, doctors were certain that the tumor would spread to her brain and ultimately result in her death. Even with the removal of her eye, they believed there was only a 50-50 chance she would survive the operation. But what brought the story to national attention was that the Vascos were deeply religious and they refused to allow the doctors to perform the surgery. When told that her decision would lead to her daughter's death, Mrs. Vasco stated, quote, God's will be done. She added, but she will not die. I pray, pray all the time. And pray for a miracle is exactly what she did. Inside of her bedroom, Mrs. Vasco set up a shrine of flowers, candles, and religious pictures. Every day she would recite prayers for hours in the hope that a miracle would cure Helen. When others attempted to convince the Vascos that surgery was the best option, they responded with stories of miraculous recoveries that had occurred within their family. First was the story of Mrs. Vasco's father, a farmer back in Czechoslovakia who had become paralyzed. His family prayed for his recovery, which resulted in him fully regaining his ability to walk several years later. Mr. Vasco stated that his mother had suffered from an unidentified swelling that covered her entire body from which prayer cured her. And it was through prayer that the Vascos hoped to heal young Helen. And based on their observations, it appeared to be working. Quote, See, she's all right. She's better, in fact, John Vasco told a reporter. When we first noticed the eye, there was a swelling. Now that's gone. After the Vasco's refused surgery, Helen's case was turned over to the Westchester County Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. And the organization did all that they could to persuade the couple to allow for the operation. But after all attempts failed, the decision was made to take the case to the courts. In other words, they were going to have the legal system decide what to do. In the couple's first hearing before Westchester Children's Court Judge George W. Smythe in March of 1933, doctors, Catholic priests, and the judge himself pleaded with Mrs. Vasco to allow Helen to undergo the surgery. But she refused and stated, No one knows whether my child is diseased. If she's going to die naturally, probably she'll be better than she is now. After carefully reviewing all the medical testimony, Judge Smythe had no choice but to issue an order for the removal of Helen's eye. He then appointed Yonkers attorney Francis, or Frank R. Fay, as Helen's guardian ad litem, which is basically a court-appointed guardian, and he also appointed Fay to be counsel for the Vascos. Now, since Smythe was not aware of a similar case that had been decided by the courts, 
he directed Faye to immediately appeal the decision and test its validity. The question of who, you know, the state or the parents, who could ultimately decide Helen's fate broke in the newspapers across the country on Wednesday, April 12th of 1933. On that same day, concerned neighbors informed the police that Helen was sick, so Dr. Michael Bender was sent in to examine her. He determined that she had a cold and a slight fever, but when Dr. Bender attempted to return the following day, he was unable to get near the Vasco home. And that's because there were so many reporters and cameramen on the street that the Vascos had no choice but to barricade themselves within their apartment. Terrified by the sudden attention, the couple moved the entire family to the rear of the apartment, and that's because it overlooked a steep drop-off and it was inaccessible to the nosy press. The next day, Helen's father spoke with his parish priest and seemed to come around to the idea of allowing the court to decide Helen's fate. Quote, The law knows best. If the law says a child must lose its eye, I will say all right. Yet Mrs. Vasco was unchanged in her decision. She continued her daily prayer while treating Helen's eye with herbal drops that she had obtained from someone in Pennsylvania. Then, on Saturday, the Vasco family simply disappeared. Milkman James Brody said that around 4.35 that morning, the door of the Vasco home opened and John Vasco's face peered out into the alleyway. He looked left, he looked right, and once he was certain that all was clear, he signaled to his wife and she carried Helen out of the building. Twin Anna held on to her mother's hand as older sister Mary locked the door. Just where could they have gone? Now, they had been sighted walking through a nearby village, but that was the last that anyone had seen of them. Andrew Lesko of Passaic, New Jersey, who was married to Mrs. Vasco's sister Barbara, he arrived in town that day to talk to the couple, but he said he had not seen them. It was thought by some that the Vascos had fled to Pennsylvania, but there really was no evidence of that. The mystery would be solved Monday evening. Mr. Vasco made an unexpected visit to the home of Police Commissioner Frederick Charles, requesting police protection for both his home and his family. Commissioner Charles said he would place a patrolman on guard outside the apartment Tuesday morning, so Vasco agreed to bring his family back home. Vasco explained that his family had spent Easter weekend at the home of a cousin. Yet Tuesday would not bring the Vasco's relief from the unwanted attention and pressure. In a unanimous decision, the appellate division in Brooklyn upheld Judge Smythe's ruling that Helen should receive the surgery. The opinion written by Associate Justice Haggerty states in part, quote, The law is not only zealous in protection of civil rights of infants, but has a special regard for the moral care, training, and guidance of children. He continues, but its beneficence extends also to the conservation of health of children, their physical well-being, as well as to the preservation of their lives. If parents or guardians neglect their duty in respect to any one of those obligations, the state in its wisdom, through its laws, intervenes. While the question now before us has never been presented to an appellate court in this state insofar as I am able to determine, power in the court to act rests upon ample authority. Justice Haggerty adds, Medicine and surgery are not exact sciences, and the result of an operation may not be foretold with accuracy. 
decision must be made and the parents persist in their refusal to consent. Children come into the world helpless, subject to all the ills to which flesh is heir. They are entitled to the benefit of all laws made for their protection, whether affecting their property, their personal rights, or their persons, by the legislature, the sovereign power of the state. The learning court has acted in this case not only in strict compliance with the law, but with scrupulous care and moderation, and upon ample and competent proof. His discretion should not be disturbed. Attorney Faye declined to comment on the appellate court's decision until he had had time to discuss it with the Vascos. But there was one big problem. The Vascos had once again disappeared. John Zabavnik, with whom they had stayed for Easter, said he had not seen them since. And the press, they speculated the family had fled the state to escape its jurisdiction. As police searched for the Vascos, Dr. E.C. Wood, who was the head of the Grasslands Hospital Eye Department, he issued a plea for the family to return as soon as possible. He warned that with each passing day, Helen had less and less of a chance of a successful recovery. On Thursday, April 20th, Judge Smythe issued a plea for the press to stop hounding the Vascos. Quote, My efforts would be greatly facilitated if the newspapers would call off the reporters and cameramen so that the parents may feel secure against further invasion of their privacy and may feel at liberty to get in touch with me. I realize the news value of the case from the standpoint of the papers, but I hope that where a child's life is at stake, I may count on their cooperation. He also revealed he had lost a child years before from a brain tumor. Quote, I am conscious of the distress to the mother and hope she will understand in the end that our sole purpose is to bring the baby's aid the best that modern medical knowledge affords in order that the little one may be spared an agonizing death. The following morning, Attorney Faye was able to make contact with the Vascos by sending messages via their relatives. Mr. and Mrs. Vasco agreed that they would allow doctors to examine Helen if it did not result in her receiving surgery. So Helen was wrapped in a blue blanket and held tightly by her mother as the couple met Frank Faye in front of their apartment. There, along with an interpreter, they hopped into the lawyer's car and a police car escorted them to the Eye Institute at Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center in Manhattan. There, a team of specialists examined Helen for more than an hour, after which the Vascos went back into hiding. The next day, the doctor's report was released and it affirmed that Helen required immediate surgery to save her life. On Sunday, the Vascos informed Attorney Faye that the couple had been unable to reach an agreement. Helen's mom was still opposed to the surgery. So Judge Smythe requested that all parties meet in his chamber on Monday. And that's when it was revealed that the Vascos had not really gone back into hiding. Authorities knew exactly where they were and simply kept them out of public view. You see, the couple had been residing at the home of Theodore Murin, who just happened to be Judge Smythe's secretary. So would Helen survive? Well, we're going to take a brief break to hear from our sponsors, but when we return, I'll tell you what happened next. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. 
On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Welcome back. We're going to pick up the story of Helen Vasco and her parents, their lawyer, and Judge Smythe were meeting in his chamber. After three hours of discussion, Judge Smythe issued the following statement, quote, About eight o'clock tonight, Mr. and Mrs. Vasco surrendered Helen to the children's court and consented to the operation. The child was placed in a hospital selected by the mother for temporary care, subject to further orders of the court. The wishes of the parent will be consulted tomorrow as to the surgeon to be selected to perform the operation. Consent was given after a conference of several hours between the parents, Mr. Fay, Judge Smythe, and some of his staff. Yet Frank Cherico, Chief Deputy Sheriff of Westchester County, had a totally different take on what had transpired. Quote, the conference lasted four hours. Judge Smythe called Deputy Sheriff Frank Rusco and me to his chambers about 4 p.m. and told us he had signed a new order for the operation. The judge was at his desk in the big room. Mrs. Vasco, hugging her baby tightly, sat across from him. The father was in another chair, and Frank and I stood against the wall. There were two interpreters, but Teddy Murin, Judge Smythe's secretary, was the only one who could understand Mrs. Vasco's dialect. She only had been over here three years. When her husband came over ten years ago, he left her in Czechoslovakia with their year-old daughter, Mary. Jericho quoted the judge as saying, Tell her we waited two weeks for her to make up her mind. 
Tell her that two courts have decided that Helen must have the operation and that we can't wait for the highest court in the state to decide because Helen might die in the meantime. Jericho described what happened next. So Teddy told her, but she hung onto her baby tighter and said something back. Teddy told the judge she was afraid that the operation would kill Helen, and anyhow she'd rather have her dead than have one of her eyes out. The judge then stated, quote, Tell her she's only an ignorant woman and the courts know best, and tell her that the baby will have the best of care, better than she could have anywhere else in the world. Cherico added, The father sat looking at the floor. Judge Smythe asked him for opinion. He just shrugged his shoulders. The law say operate. My wife say no. What can I do? Cherico went on. Finally, Judge Smythe stood up and waved a paper. He was sick having undergone an operation last week, and I wondered how he kept his patience so long. The judge then said, Here's a court order for the operation. There are the deputy sheriffs to enforce it. I insist there be no more delay. Cherico concluded, He nodded to us. I went to the mother and held out my arms for the girl. She just slumped in her chair. I picked up Helen and carried her from the room. It went against the grain, leaving that poor stricken woman sitting there. I haven't been able to think about anything else all day. But both Judge Smythe and Mr. Fay denied Cherico's version of what had transpired, and both agreed that the mother had voluntarily surrendered Helen. When a reporter from the New York Times questioned the father as to whether his wife had agreed to the operation or not, he replied, No, no, that's not true. The judge, he talked for three hours. Then my wife, she got to go home to our other children. Then the judge said to three big men, take her. And the men took her away. They broke my wife's heart. She's been sick ever since. My wife told the judge there were hundreds of people in the city with no arms, no legs, no eyes. But the government doesn't take them and make them have an operation. They beg on the street. Why must they take my happy baby? They told my wife the baby would die. Well, everybody has to die sometime. The baby belonged to its mother, and it's not for the judge to decide what's best. In the end, it didn't matter which version of the story was correct. Helen was taken into surgery the following day. That's Tuesday, April 25th of 1933. Mrs. Vasco was too ill to attend the surgery, so the couple stayed home as Helen underwent the knife. Afterward, the hospital issued the following statement, which was penned by Dr. Iago Galston. Quote, Helen Vasco was operated on today at 4.25 p.m. at the I Institute of the Presbyterian Hospital. The operation, which was performed by Dr. John H. Dunnington, was completed in 13 minutes. The diseased eye was removed together with a section of the eye nerve. The child was found to suffer from a malignant tumor, which is technically called a glioma, a term indicating a pathologic or disease involving the retina or sensitive back layer of the eye. The cause of the glioma is unknown. Medical experience has shown that in glioma, the condition, when not operated upon, extends and always terminates fatally. The success of the operation depends upon the early removal of the tumor. If operation is not performed early, the growth at times becomes so extensive as to render its complete extirpation at operation impossible. 
in the case of Helen Vasco, an operation for the removal of the diseased eyeball was advised in January of this year. A microscopic examination of the tissue is to be made shortly. This examination ought to reveal the extent to which the disease process has invaded the optic nerve. While operation offers to the sufferer of glioma of the eye the only possible chance of conserving life, this chance is not a full one in so far as experience has demonstrated that in at least 50% of the cases, the extension of the disease process at the time of operation is too advanced. The condition of the patient at the end of the operation was entirely satisfactory. Boy, those are words that only a doctor could love. Back at the Vasco residence, a couple nervously awaited the results of the surgery and testing. Quote, My wife is sick in bed and I cannot leave her, husband John told the reporters. I can't see the baby because I've got to watch my wife. She says if the baby dies, she died too. I'm afraid that the baby won't get well. They said the baby was blind, but she played so well. She could see everything. She could pick up little pins from the carpet. Her eyes seemed all right. Two days after the surgery, the hospital issued another statement, quote, The child is doing well. She is sitting up in bed, playing with her toys and dolls. She appears content. She is not running a temperature and has no untoward symptoms. The test results were released later that afternoon, quote, The pathological laboratory at the Eye Institute reports that a microscopic examination of the diseased eye of Helen Vasco reveals that the growth did not extend into the optic nerve. This finding renders the prognosis favorable. On Friday, Helen's bandages were removed and a patch was placed over the eye socket, and her father was finally able to visit her and seem relieved. Helen continued to steadily improve and was released from the hospital on Saturday, May 6, 1933. Judge Smythe's secretary, Theodore Murin, drove Helen and her parents back to their home where they were once again surrounded by reporters and photographers. John Vasco pushed his way through the crowd, entered his apartment, and then reemerged moments later, armed with a baseball bat and a broom handle. A tussle ensued which resulted in two smashed cameras and numerous bruises. Yet within days, Helen's story had moved from the front page to yesterday's news. In an August 6th New York Times follow-up story, John Vasco commented, quote, Everybody was interested in Helen. It was Helen this and Helen that. Now nobody cares. And the family's financial picture had not improved either. Quote, I have no job. I get $5 a week relief. We owe for the rent. He continued, You see, Helen has no glass eye yet. I think maybe she ought to have one, but we have no money. Well, upon hearing that last statement, Nina Webster, an NRA captain in Manhattan, now NRA is the National Recovery Administration, not the National Rifle Association. Anyway, Nina Webster, an NRA captain in Manhattan, she ordered a glass eye to be made for Helen and requested that the bill be sent to her. But Judge Smythe quickly squashed that plan. That's because the county had intended all along to purchase the artificial eye, but the doctor said that she was still too young to have one. He wrote, quote, I am deeply appreciative of Ms. Webster's kind offer. She has consented to abide by my wishes that when the time comes for the new eye to be put in, she may defray the expenses if she desires to. 
In the meantime, we're trying to get the father, John Vasco, a position as gardener. In August 1935, Judge Smythe found himself in a similar situation to that of Helen Vasco. This time, a boy named Henry Spiak had been crippled by polio and needed surgery so that he could walk again. But in a bit of deja vu, his father wouldn't allow his son to be operated upon. But ultimately, based on the precedent set by Helen Vasco's case, the court would order the surgery. But before the decision was handed down, the New York Times asked Mrs. Vasco for her opinion, quote, If I had known what doctors can do, I would have never fought so long in court. I'm glad now that Helen was operated upon. Before, she was always sick, and I never knew what was the matter. I didn't think doctors could do anything. Now she's always well and happy. I would like to tell the father of that boy that he can rely on the doctors. Well, not long after this, the Vascos would move to Bridgeport, Connecticut, where John found work at the Remington Arms factory there. Helen would grow up in Bridgeport and graduate from Warren Harding High School before marrying Ferdinand Grunick on August 2, 1952. Sadly, her cancer would return and she'd pass away on December 7th of 1963 at 32 years of age. She was survived by her parents, siblings, husband, and two young children, aged five and seven at the time. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. I hope you found that story on Helen Vasco to be interesting. While I don't pretend to be a lawyer, my understanding is that it was a landmark case back in its day, and it allowed for doctors, social services, and the government to have far greater input in determining what was the best treatment for sick children, you know, when their parents objected. I decided to do the story while researching the last podcast on Isabel Mackay. You know, I was reading through some old newspaper articles about that incident that occurred in Hastings on Hudson, New York, And, you know, something in my brain just clicked that I had another story in my files that had occurred there. So I pulled the file out, did some more research on it, and I came up with what you just heard. I also want to extend a big thank you to Helen's son, Tom, who was able to answer some of the questions that I had. Plus, he was able to confirm a few of the conclusions that I had tentatively made while I was piecing the story together. So I really do appreciate his help there. Now, I'll be posting some images plus the text of this podcast on my website, which is uselessinformation.org, so be sure to check that out. Also, don't hesitate to contact me with your thoughts or suggestions on this story or any of the others I've done, whether it be on the podcast, on the website, or in my books. My email is steve at uselessinformation.org. That's steve at uselessinformation.org. And you can also use the contact form on my website, or you can contact me through Messenger on Facebook. Just a reminder that my new book, The Flipside of History, is currently available. And also be sure to check out my two previous books. Those are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. All three books are collections of long-forgotten true stories, you know, just like the ones you hear on this podcast. Be sure to sign up for my Twitter feed. It's at UselessInfoCast, and you'll be among the first to know when a new episode is released. Again, the handle's at UselessInfoCast. Also be sure to like the show on Facebook You can just do a quick search for the Useless Information Podcast there, and it should pop up. Make sure you subscribe to the Useless Information Podcast, and you can do it to whichever podcast platform you use. And there's a lot of them. Amazon Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeart, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and on and on. 
And as I mentioned earlier, I'll be back shortly with another podcast of the shorter stories, the retro sponsor, and the question of the day. And it'll be slightly expanded in content over what I've done in the past, so be sure to check it out. Anyway, thanks for listening and take care. Bye, everyone.